Welcome to the Redeemer Covenant Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are dedicated to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. If you want to stay connected to all that's happening here, visit rcctulsa.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is week two in our series, Unfinished, where we are looking at our lives as unfinished people, our church as an unfinished church, and our mission at large outside of the ministries of this church as an unfinished mission. And so let's go to Luke chapter 9 in your red Bibles. That's page 1609 if you don't have your Bible with you today. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, we want to make sure that you leave with one uh, today as a gift. And I hope you brought your unfinished guidebook with you back from last week. Uh, If you weren't here last week, please grab one of these uh, today before you leave. Uh, The guidebook contains a letter from our senior pastor describing in detail what this unfinished season uh, is, as well as um, today's scripture, questions to ponder from today's sermon, uh, and space to take notes on today's sermon are on page uh, 30 and 31 of your guidebook, February 11th, week two. Uh, I'm Really glad that you braved the elements. Clearly, we're missing some of our family this morning due to the weather. Uh, There actually this morning was ice all over my driveway. Um, And so I was was, uh, more more nervous than I typically am to leave in conditions like this. But um, I'm really thankful uh, that you have braved the elements. So I'm going to say good morning again like I always do. I'd like you to say it back like you're not afraid of cold weather. Good morning. Let me know by a show of hands if you have flown on an airplane. Yeah, the majority of the room. Uh, If you have, you know the script, and I'm going to just go through an abbreviated segment of the script that you hear when you're on an airplane, and I promise in just a minute it'll all make sense. But you know how God speaks to me and reveals things to me through the most random, um, strange, unexpected ways, and he spoke to me about uh, something on a recent flight. So you hear, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Adam, and I'm your flight attendant. On behalf of Captain Bill Clark and the entire crew, welcome aboard Redeemer Flight 1254, nonstop service from Tulsa to Cancun. Our flight time will be three hours and 24 minutes. We will be flying at an altitude of 32,000 feet. The captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt and make sure your seat back and folding trays are in their full upright position. We remind you that this is a non-smoking flight. Smoking is prohibited on the entire aircraft, including the lavatories. Tampering with, disabling, or destroying the lavatory smoke detector is prohibited by law. I'd like to ask for your full attention as the flight attendants demonstrate the safety features of this aircraft. To fasten your seatbelt, insert the metal fittings one into the other and tighten by pulling on the loose end of the strap. To release your seatbelt, lift the upper portion of the buckle. We suggest that you keep your seatbelt fastened through the flight as we may experience turbulence. There's a whole lot more to this script, but for the sake of time, 
Uh, all safety information can be found on the card in the seat pocket in front of you. I did not steal this. <laughs> Whoever that was, I heard you. I'm sorry that my integrity is still so questionable to you. On a flight a few weeks ago, I noticed something. While the flight attendant was doing a fabulous job to prepare us for travel, and I actually flew on seven or eight airplanes in the last five or six weeks, and I think I did this every single flight. So they're doing a fabulous job preparing us for travel, and what do I do? I put my headphones in, I turn up the music, and I get out a good book. Now, I've heard these safety instructions over a hundred times, and I don't smoke, so there's no chance of me attempting to break the rule in the bathroom. And of course, for all of us, there's the assumption that nothing is really going to happen to this aircraft. But to cut myself some slack, I did turn my phone on airplane mode. But here's the deal, I ignored potentially life-saving instructions. Think about that. I ignored potentially life-saving instructions. And so here's today's first point to write down. This is brilliant advice. Don't ignore life-saving instructions. And I know this is something that we want all of our children and grandchildren to glean from because we're thinking of our instructions, right? But for all of us here today, for the scriptures in our lives that we glean our wisdom and our accountability from, we cannot ignore life-saving instructions. So Luke 9 records an intense scene capturing a deeply meaningful dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, and once the disciples begin to grasp what Jesus' objectives truly were, they hear life-saving instructions. Let's look together at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and the disciples were with him, he asks them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? I imagine there could have been a pause there for a moment, right? Because you're kind of thinking, is this a trick question? Uh, Jesus just turned the conversation around. He's asking, who do we say he is? And just like in many settings where we may speculate a trick question, there could have been a moment of silence among the disciples looking around at one another. Who's gonna try to answer this? You know Peter answered, God's Messiah. So this conversation took place after a series of extraordinary events. Jesus healed a demon-possessed man and a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He raised a dead girl to life. He then fed 5,000 men and five, with five loaves of bread and two fish, and there were leftovers. So assuming he fed the women and children too, maybe 15,000 plus people received free lunch that day. He withdrew to pray, and his disciples followed. 
And at this point, we see Jesus' objective is to make his identity clear to his followers. So he asks, what's the latest word? What are people saying? What are you hearing out there? Who do people say that I am? John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets from the past? And then Jesus drops the hammer. He got to the core of the matter. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What we have to understand is that our faith cannot be built on what we hear and learn about Jesus in movies or books or podcasts or sermons or curriculums or discipleship material. All those things are good. It comes down to who do you say I am? So that question is timeless. So ponder this today. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is ownership of our faith, isn't it? Who do you say that Jesus really is? And without understanding the implications of his confession, Peter answers, you're the Messiah. Following Peter's confession of Christ being the Messiah, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone in verse 21. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, can't you picture the disciples wondering, why can't we tell anyone about this? How are we supposed, we have seen you heal the sick and raise the dead to life and you did something crazy with just a little happy meal and fed thousands of people. How are we supposed to keep this a secret? I'm ready to shout this from the rooftops. And Jesus had a simple but horrifying answer. See, the disciples were waiting for a Messiah that would lead them to war. In light of Israel's subjection to Rome, the disciples likely hoped Jesus' mission was political. They wanted a Messiah who promised deliverance and salvation, yes, but also military victory and national dominance. And here they learn, right here in this picture, After acknowledging he is the Messiah, they learn that Jesus has radically different methods, that he's the Prince of Peace, that he's come to suffer, that the final road the disciples would travel with Jesus would lead to a criminal's cross. Just think. Think of how alarming this would have been in that moment to his followers. What do you mean? You're the Messiah Why does this end on a cross, the world's cruelest instrument of torture, followed by Jesus mentioning the incomprehensible notion of resurrection? Peter was likely stunned, as he was the one that spoke up. You're the Messiah. Don't you think Peter was stunned as Jesus clarified his mission, not one of physical conquest, but of suffering and sacrifice? It is at this point of their dialogue where the disciples were invited to make a life-altering decision. To follow Jesus is to take the road not to popularity and influence, but to self-denial and even possible death. For a moment, this probably sounded like nonsense. Like, what is Jesus talking about? This is dangerous nonsense. No one willingly walks into this kind of 
future. No one willingly walks into this kind of torture. It's crazy. And it's even crazier to consider following him. But think about this with me. Once we understand who Jesus is, we're confronted by the outcomes of a life of discipleship. Once we fully understand who Jesus is, once we confess you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, and I believe you are who you say you are, then we're confronted by the outcomes. What are the outcomes of professing Christ as Lord? What is the result of placing our belief in him? And this desired outcome is revealed in the succeeding verses, a paradoxical truth that still summons us today. Verse 23, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? The English translation weakens the original language of wanting to be a disciple. The Greek athelo was commonly used to express the Lord's best offer. Come on. That's good stuff right there. The original text, this is God's best offer, and this is the expression of the believer's desire to receive it. Yes, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your follower. I see this as your best offer. So if we deeply desire to receive the Lord's best offer, which is discipleship, then there is criteria that follows, which is self-denial. So consider for a moment what this new self at this moment of conversion would say to the old self. Well, there's a variety of answers and possibilities, but maybe something like this. You're not in charge any longer. You're simply not in charge any longer. I love Jesus more than human approval, honor, comfort, and life itself. So I'm ready to endure opposition, shame, suffering, and even death. There is more gain in following Jesus even with suffering than there is in walking away from him even with 10,000 earthly possessions, pleasures, and benefits. I picked up a Richard Foster book this week, which was timely. Um, Just pleasure reading, but was very inspired by a practical example of a life of self-denial. He writes uh, in Streams of Living Water about the life of Dorothy Day. This is a woman against her husband's wishes. She became a Christian and was baptized. And as a result, her husband left her. She worked as a reporter who wrote about social injustices and frequently immersed herself in the realm of the oppressed. And this led to multiple arrests over the course of her career, many nights spent in jail. Excuse me. I went by Gretchen's office this week and I said, I just read a story that reminds me of you. I feel like we're sitting among a Dorothy Day right now. 
Foster writes a summary of her life and description of her funeral. And what I read is a fitting example of self-denial. He writes, Dorothy Day was and is a living reproach to a church that has become self-satisfied with its affluence and privileged position. Dorothy Day was and is a living reproach to anyone who cares more about the shopping days until Christmas than we care about the poor. Her death on November 29th, 1980 was as quiet as the turning of a page. Thousands attended her funeral, including well-known writers and respected editors. The homeless poured in off of the streets. Christians and atheists joined together to honor her. People traveled thousands of miles and among the sea of mourners and attendants that day, and does this not speak of the life that she lived, stood her ex-husband, the man who left her for professing faith in Jesus over 50 years earlier. What a woman. Dorothy reminds us all that a life of self-denial will be most revealed by what people say about us when we're gone. Back to Luke 9, what does it mean to take up my cross daily and follow Jesus? What does this look like? Life is full of unfortunate circumstances that we don't choose. Illnesses or relationships that are fractured because of the other party and many other examples, but the the cross that we carry is a cross that we willingly choose to carry. It's not just what uh, we are subjected to outside of our control, but what we choose to carry. As a disciple of Jesus, we deliberately choose what could be avoided. We look for opportunities to sacrifice. We don't sacrifice when opportunities knock. We look for opportunities. We don't consider the cost. We don't worry about who gets the credit. We don't compare to others. We walk with courage. We refuse to complain. We choose a hard place. We choose a difficult relationship. We choose a thankless job. We serve the stranger. We love our neighbor. We do anything at any time at any cost that might possibly please Jesus. I shared this in a sermon a few weeks ago and I can't resist sharing it again because it's such a beautiful picture painted of carrying the cross. This is from a book by Caroline Westerhoff. She says the Christian is to put himself or herself without reservation in the service of God and neighbor. It is engaging in the world's suffering because we can do nothing less. It is being vulnerable even to those who will turn against us To deny self, the grasping, self-centered ego is to liberate the true self. Listen to that. To deny the self is to liberate, to set the self free, to discover all that God has for you in this life. The wondrous one created in the image of God and baptized into the likeness of Christ. Yes, Carrying your cross, that phrase in and of itself sounds defeating, doesn't it? Because we have this picture of our Christ carrying his cross, being brutally beaten and murdered. 
It sounds defeating, but the opposite is true. To carry our cross is liberating. To carry our cross is to live a life of victory. And the victory is found in 24 and 25. Whoever wants to save their life, there's the victory. You want to save your life? So many things in this world are trying to compete with your life, your joy, your well-being, your health, your prosperity, your peace of mind, the purity of your heart. The world is out for you, my friends. You want to save your life? It's right here. Save your life, but you're going to lose it. Whoever loses their life, though, for me, Jesus says, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? These are life-saving instructions. This is it. This is where Jesus says, you want to save your life, listen Listen, and then do what I say. Lose your life. Deny yourself. Follow me at all costs. We work for profit. There's nothing wrong with that. God's provision is a great blessing. We buy our food, our education, our medicine, our homes. We even have fun with our money. And I don't know about you, but I have a strong belief that God and his character is fun, and that he fully enjoys watching his children have those moments of deep belly laughs. You know what I'm saying? I had a good laugh last night. I was crying on the couch with my kids. This is bad. I'm going to admit it anyway. Um, nobody was hurt in the film, okay? But we watched this, <laughs> this film of this guy trying to push a trash can up the driveway that was covered in ice. And it was wonderful. Uh, a few weeks ago, I told you I would send you this PDF to, to illustrate uh, instructions on centering prayer, centering our thoughts on the character of God. If you want to email me this week, I'll send you a link of a guy trying to push a trash can up a driveway covered in ice. I don't even know where I, why I talked about that, but it's funny. We have things, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, as we gain wealth, we must not forfeit our meaning and our purpose. We cannot make our wealth an idol. We cannot let money be a God. To embody this call to discipleship should inevitably result in a lifestyle and priorities that are somewhat unusual. How do we as followers of Christ with great prosperity, how do we look different? What are we doing different, countercultural? How do we resist letting money become an idol, a God in our lives? In the context of unfinished, we have big, audacious desires and goals to see God move in our church and through our mission over the course of the next few years. And in the context of this unfinished initiative, we would all benefit, all of us benefit, anytime we evaluate our stewardship. We do. 
It's a big part of our lives. And statistics are gross as to how much time and energy and thought we put into our stewardship and our finance. We earn money, we give money, we save money, we spend money, and we resist the love of money. We resist believing that our security is in the hands of our accounts, but our security is in the hands of our Savior. Francis Bacon, he says this great line, money's a good servant but a bad master. Money is a good servant but a bad master. Verse 25 asks this rhetorical question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I I really do think this is rhetorical because the answer assumes zero profit. I mean zero profit a man gains. The whole world forfeits its soul, zero profit. So if you convert the question and the anticipated answer into a statement, it could read like this. There is zero profit in owning the entire world because no amount of wealth can purchase your soul. Zero profit in owning the entire world because no amount of wealth can purchase your soul. It is quite clear that our stewardship is a matter of our soul. Our stewardship is a matter of the soul. Therefore, our generosity is one of the truest ways we can deny ourselves in the adventure of following Jesus, truly. And I'm, I'm living this story in my own life because I married a girl 13 years ago and I, and I was like this, clenching everything I had, palms down. And I married her in one of, the, one of the toughest transitions that I had to make in life and she is the one that influenced me is to do this, to just let go to look at all we have. She tells me all the time, it's not ours anyway. Andrea, it's not ours anyway. It's God's. It's God's. And it's such a wonderful, consistent reminder that I get from Scripture, from my wife. So let me close, and if you'll turn with me in this unfinished guidebook, um, to pages 20 to 21 you're gonna find a giving path. And really, this is, this is for you to read, to think on, to reflect on, to ponder, to pray, to think within your own heart, your own priority, to talk with your spouse, your family, your friends. But this giving path on page 20 and 21, let me read to you the top section, Growing in Generosity. This tool is designed to help you focus your giving and be increasingly intentional about it. This path focuses on behavior and attitudes of our hearts rather than amounts. Each step of the path represents growth and a lifestyle of generosity and sacrifice. These are not steps to get you closer to God, but steps to help you be increasingly more generous toward the one who gave it all. So you'll see a description of five different types of givers in this guidebook. And I just want to invite you as we embark on this season together. I wanna invite you to read over these descriptions, to spend time in prayer and reflection, to ask God where you fall in this path. Which description on this giving path describes you or your family? And second, where's God calling you? How is he speaking to you in relation to 
denying yourself, which in so many ways, in so many ways, points back to our stewardship. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm amazed as I, as I reflect on that conversation so long ago with the disciples. Because everything in our lives tell us that success is in acquiring more. That to live a full life, we have to gain as much as possible. Yet, you call us to deny ourselves, to prioritize the kingdom of God, the ministry of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives more than our gain. Help us, God. This is, this is hard. This is difficult. Help us to resist things which push us in the wrong direction when it comes to our generosity, our stewardship. Help us to see that a life of self-denial is in fact a life of victory, a life of more than we could ever comprehend. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you.